Welcome to Wine and Film, a perfect pairing. I'm film critic Gary Cogill, and today, Michael Keaton is back on the big screen playing Ray Kroc. That's the man who founded the McDonald's franchise in a film called The Founder. Plus, Haley and I watch a lot of documentaries. We're going to take a closer look at two we just can't wait to tell you about, including a terrific film about the first female wild eagle tamer in Mongolia. It's called The Eagle Huntress. And an enlightened, beautifully made film called The Birth of Sake. I'm wine expert Haley Hamilton Cogill. In line with the founder, I wanted to pair with a discussion this week on wineries that have faced some of the same issues the original McDonald brothers faced. What happens when you build a brand and then you have to sell it, either to help you expand or simply because you need the help? So often, great wineries change when the new buyer comes in, changing that original vision. We'll get into a few of the stories a little bit later in the show. But first, Gary, let's talk about The Founder. Okay, The Founder. It's directed by one of our favorites, John Lee Hancock, who directed The Blind Side. Right. He also directed that remake of The Alamo, where I thought Billy Bob Thornton was very good in that film. But that film you never made care. a dime, yeah. uh, never found an audience. It was kind of a mess, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, supposed to be directed by Ron Howard, who dropped out the last minute. And John Lee Hancock stepped in trying to save, save Texas. <laughs> you know, And it just didn't quite work. So yeah. this. This one, the founder, uh, stars Michael Keaton, who is on a resurgence of his career. He's doing exactly. He just seems to be on a roll. Remember that time when uh, when John Travolta John kind Travolta of John Travolta had the exactly. He's had, I think, three resurgences. Mm-hmm. Michael Keaton. I mean, he's so good in Birdman and uh, and also and Spotlight, and fantastic Sp- Spotlight. Oh my god! And I think he's really good in mm-hmm. this film too. But, he plays the part very well. I just didn't. I just I just hated who he was. <laughs> well, we're gonna get into that a little bit, Laura Dern plays his wife. Michael Keaton plays uh, Ray Kroc. And Ray Kroc is the guy who founded the McDonald's franchise, but he didn't found McDonald's. He expanded McDonald's across the country. He was a milkshake mixer salesman. Yes. And that was one of his clients. And he found this store in in Southern California California. that ordered eight of his mixers and nobody's ever ordered eight of them. So he drove there and and it's the McDonald brothers. Mm -hmm. It's Dick McDonald Mm -hmm. and Mac McDonald. (laughs) And they had McDonald's, the very first original. McDonald's. Mm-hmm. In this little town, and it, it, making hamburgers and milkshakes, making hamburgers in ninety seconds, right. and sending them out the window was everybody was driving up, and the they would have car hops. hops. Exactly. So all of a sudden, nobody went to, knew what to do in this little town because you had to walk up to the window, and it changed the whole idea. Plus, they organized their kitchen so they could do those little dollops of mustard, little dollop of ketchup. Yeah, they the completely pickle. they they figured out how to create how to do fast a, food, a quality product, and I think that was one of their main things. It was still a very high quality fast food product. According to them, they use of, all fresh ingredients. Right, uh, Their milkshakes yeah. were made with milk. Mm-hmm. And so Ray Kroc comes in and he thinks, well, let's figure out how to franchise this. Let's and take this across the country. So yeah. they made a deal and they started to franchise them. And, and, and then it would come back, all these wealthy friends of Ray Kroc would start a franchise, but not police it, not not supervise not it. sweep the the trash out of the front no they were disasters yeah, yeah, and yeah, they were they dirty they were selling barbecue and so the McDonald brothers came back and said no Ray can't you do can't that. do this and then Ray fought them and eventually turned it into a real estate venture because at, at, at his point he said well we're just going to buy the land and build these and, and they, they fought and fought and fought and fought and went to a court case and eventually the poor McDonald brothers gave in to Ray Kroc for, I want to say 2.1 million, somewhere around there. 
and a, and a handshake on 1% of the gross for the rest of the life of the franchise. And of course that was a handshake deal and that never, never yeah. that never happened in court. And the McDonald brothers eventually went out of business and went bankrupt. In fact, Ray Kroc was so mean about things that he built a golden arches across the street from the original McDonald's and put them out of business. And Nasty. so let's go back to your Nasty. original comment. We're watching a film about corporate America, a, a guy who we kind of look and go, wow, that's a McDonald's franchise. What a thing to do. And he, he pretty much kicked the original brothers in the butt the entire time and took advantage of them. Mm-hmm. And he was not a nice guy. Mm-mm. And it's a difficult character. So we're watching this movie and we can't stand we Ray Kroc as played by Michael Keaton. I never met Ray. He's not alive today, but uh, played in this movie. It's a real dislikable character and a really good movie. Mm-hmm. But it takes away from the enjoyment of it because at the end of it, you kind of want to take a shower and get Ray Kroc off of you. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you? Yes. And you, and you really don't want to eat at a McDonald's. <laughs> so, so it begs the question can you like a film but not like the people in the film or not like the characters that well, are played I, in the I film? I think that's probably a, the sign of a good film because you, I did become invested in it and became invested in, in, and being angry yet. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, it's like I hadn't really followed the story. I'm, Sorry, personally, not a big McDonald's eater. I've never really. No, neither of us are. Yeah, we're not big fast food people. And so. Haley, let's just step back. (laughs) I have never in my life, and knowing you, we've been married for a few years. uh, We've known each other over 10. I've never, ever seen my wife ever go through a fast food restaurant ever and order anything. I've never seen a fast food container in your hand do other like, than a pizza. We do like takeout Thai Thai, but well, that's, that's different. That's <laughs> a Thai restaurant in their neighborhood. They, na- they liked it so much they named it twice, Thai Thai. Um, I don't, but yeah, I mean, it's just not the way that we eat. No. And so, uh, but I do know a, a very a large majority or a, a large number of Americans do enjoy great fast food. Well, they, and, yeah. And then you hope that the fast food that food that they're eating is is of a high quality and i think that that was something that that did come out in this that instead of putting milk in their milkshakes they used a powdered powdered milk that you just mixed with water and right. but hey it's going to taste good and and it cut corners and saved millions and it saved of dollars millions of dollars and so it's which are you corporate america or are you are you pulling for the little guy and i think inevitably i've always pulled for the little guy well, but i did fr- become invested in in the people in the film and so i think in that case, John Lee Hancock did a great job in making you, you know, kind of be interested in in the storyline for the film. It's a very well-made film. So why didn't this film come out for, I think it did open in New York, L.A. for Oscar mm-hmm. considered. But it's not being even considered, it's not on any list of anything. I think it's a B, not an A. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I think it's a good film, not a great film. And I'm, I'm watching it, but I have such Nick a... Nick Offerman has a great little part. Nick Offerman <laughs> is one of the brothers. He's Dick McDonald. He's great. And his brother's Mac. <laughs> his brother's got all kinds of health issues. Yeah. And you just feel sorry for these guys. You know, when you, when you shake hands on 1%, McDonald's is now worth 62. It's about a $62 billion. And it's worldwide. Business. And they, McDo- wrap your head around this. They serve 1% of the world's food every day. I just can't even. Yeah. So we have that's kind of an off-putting thing for us as well, yeah. to think that a, a fresh garden as opposed to McDonald's. But there's a lot of people that you know that I, I get all that. But I think you can like a film and not like the 
people that it portrays. Mm-hmm. I, because a good film's a good film. It just takes more labor on the part of watching it. Exactly. I'm exhausted. Like you said, I needed a shower. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I, 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 you know, as I'm sitting there enjoying my glass of wine, watching a film as we often do, I'm, I'm kind of angry that I opened a good bottle to watch a film with people that and you, <laughs> and you root for Laura Dern as well because she's so patient yeah you know he's he's a salesman yeah and he's and he's out on the road all the time he's a mess and, yeah, he's, he's just a handful he's 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 a mess and then when he gets a little bit of success he's pretty much a narcissist mm-hmm. and it all pretty much goes to his head and then he gets way over his head and and all those things but so and I, I would imagine back in the day when you created something like McDonald's how do, how do you Keep quality control. How do you, how do you even do that? And they, I think they did that by real, by doing the franchising of the real estate, holding on to the land and making sure that each owner owned that land. Right. And so, so he got a part of the the real estate deal rather than the hamburger deal. Right. Because then the owner of the actual franchise becomes invested in it. Right. And, and then I think. And those became really interesting, good businesses mm-hmm. for a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with all of that. Mm-hmm. It's Ray Kroc I have a problem yeah, with. Because he was just yeah. slimy. But I think that that's how you keep quality control. You have standards, and then you have someone whose actual livelihood is on is at stake when they own the franchise. Ray Kroc gets a percentage of the real estate deal, mm-hmm. but somebody actually has to make sure that that, that, that business is, is functioning. And there, so. There's a franchise in the Northwest called Burgerville, and I grew up with Burgerville <laughs> and McDonald's and all that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Burgerville makes fresh, because it's Oregon, mm-hmm. fresh wild blackberry shakes during the blackberry season. That's beautiful. And if you look at a map, I looked I at like a map seasonal, the other Seasonal eating in a fast food restaurant is, is rather. Um, it's extraordinary. Abnormal, they use real ice cream and real blackberries, and, and it's one of the best things I've ever it's, had. Is it still around? Yeah, it's still around. Oh, good. You good. Right on 82nd. <laughs> 82nd and Halsey is a Burgerville that you can't. But it begs the question about quality control mm-hmm. and, and about doing that. So I'm, I'm curious from your well, standpoint in the wine that, world. That's a perfect lead. And in franchising. Well, because I think that there's, and, and, you know, wineries aren't necessarily franchised, but we have seen um, over the years a lot of wineries that started out as passion projects that then grew up and, and either wanted to expand or their their owners are simply of an age that they want to retire and so they sell and they sell to to a new owner that has you know every intention of maintaining the quality of of the brand that they bought but often that changes and i think we've seen that i think there are it's some happening a lot lately well and it's i you know i i i, I don't want to to name any names of of wineries that haven't but but i think it's just you know mandavi sold to constellation changes went through genevieve uh jensen has has or jean-vieve sorry um jensen has has remained their winemaker though and so they did go through uh uh some changes over the years, but um, they're still producing a, a quality Napa product. Um, Miracel is one of the is, has been one of the the oldest wineries in Sonoma. They they were sold to Gallo. Um, um, uh, the McMurray had, was sold to Gallo. You you kind of think right. about um, all of Fred these McMurray. different. Um, yeah. Richard Arrowwood sold his to Constellation, and and so there are, are kind of some of these these family owned wineries that then sell to a larger producer, and then you kind of have to hope that that producer is going to to put it in a place in their portfolio where they 
maintain it. And and sadly, it doesn't always happen. And you do end up with with wineries that are making that at one point had a great high quality product that now is is more of a bulk wine. Right. The other side of that, though, is that you do have, um, and I think this is something we've seen really more in recent years. And I'll I'll use Gallo again for as an example because Gallo recently bought um, Orrin Swift and Jackson Family Wines has gone in and is buying a lot of property in Oregon and 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 maintaining the the quality at least so far of the wineries that they're working with and. And I I think that that's the focus, and I'll kind of use a, a few examples. And and with Jackson Family, they recently, just in the last year, they bought Penarash and they bought Willa Kenzie. And Willa Kenzie, I don't know if you even know this, in Willamette Valley was the first winery that I was the first wine club I ever joined. I I fell in, in your life my, of all the wine clubs available. My very available? first wine club. It was um, one of the first trips that we took um, when I my sweet friend Deb and I went out to Willamette. We went to Willa Kinsey early on. I loved their portfolio of wines. They they made like five or six different pinots from all of the different uh, regions within uh, Willamette, kind of really focusing on the different terroir and different soil types. And they're, they're, I just fell so in love with their wines. And... Um, you spend half a day in that tasting room. I just, I, I just, I, I, I just think it's one of the. I just found, yeah. I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with their story. I fell in love with what they were doing. But their owner now, or the in the last year, he's seventy three, and he owns. He had one hundred and twenty five, I think, acres of vineyards. He has the production capability of twenty five thousand cases. He um, had a beautiful tasting room. But he's a 73-year-old man, and he has a son that has his own career. And so what mm. do you do when your business is – when when your kids don't want to take over your business? We're seeing that a lot, too. You're seeing that a lot, and we're seeing that a lot in Napa and Sonoma and, and a lot of these areas that maybe somebody's gone into the wine business as a second career when they can finally afford it. And um, – and so, by the time they're ready to retire, the kids already have their own lives, yeah. and and so they are not going into um, follow in that passion. So they sold. You know, Willa Kenzie needed to to sell to to have so that they could retire. The other side of that is something like Penarash with Lynn Penarash staying on as as the the woman running the running the winery. And that seems to be the key of a lot of these that we're talking about. A lot of these. About. I think that we saw that also last year. When we're kind of happy for some of them. With, when Jackson family bought Suduri, and we've talked about Adam Lee and his wife Diana on this show before, and, and I'm thrilled for Adam. That, that makes they, me so happy. That they have been able to to sell to someone that there has kept them on, at least for a period of time. We don't know how long some of these contracts will last, but you hope that the the dedication and the passion the story that that um, that Adam and Diana have for creating Siduri will be able to be maintained as they're still a part of it. So when you buy like a, when when you're a major player and you buy a boutique winery, what we're seeing is they're keeping the boutique and the winery. I think, and they're keeping the quality. I think some wineries are, and or some buyers are. I think you know that's for an example of what what Gallo's done with some of their recent purchases. Um, I think that that you either have to allow the people that have done it really well to still be involved in some some way if they want to be. Or you just have to have really, really good people 
on hand to make sure that that the that the story and the product can maintain a, a quality that it's become known for. I think that that's then kind of going back to what Jackson family's done in, in Willamette Valley, having Eugenia Keegan, who we adore and and have have kind of praised on the show before as the person kind of overseeing a lot of what's going on in Willamette is a very good thing because she is a winemaker. She is she has worked in Willamette for, you know, many years. We she, trust her. She knows that she's got a great palate. She also is a very smart businesswoman. And so she knows how to deliver while maintaining um, the 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 story of why Willamette Valley is so special. Um, there are a couple, there, there's another kind of wine group that I do want to hit on, but I think I'll do that in our next segment. Okay. If you want to you take a little break? Yeah, let's take a little break. Uh, when we come back on Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing, we'll continue this conversation. Plus, Haley and I have a lot to say about a, a couple of documentaries that we're going to highly recommend, including a well-made film called The Birth of Saki. We can't wait, and we will be right back. And welcome back to Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Haley, let's pick up that conversation that we are talking about before yeah. ab- about larger groups buying smaller groups and where hoping, the wine goes right. and hoping that the wine stays the quality when it was a boutique. Exactly. Hoping that that is maintained. And there's one group that I've always kind of loved and, and really respected how they've done it um, when they bought different properties and, and figured out how to let those properties still shine and and Chateau St. Michelle up in Woodenville in Washington is is a group that I think kind of has figured this out and when they've acquired new properties they um they've often let the property the winery do its thing while kind of taking in all the back office uh, work. Um, and I think we're seeing this with with other um, brands where... That takes a burden off you of can, them, too. Exactly, because, you know, a winemaker's a winemaker. They don't need to be in charge of marketing, and they don't need to be out on sales calls, and they don't need to be sending samples They might out. need a new tractor. And, and yeah. that's the financial part of it, to be able to have the tools. I think that that was one thing with Jackson Family that we saw with, with Siduri and with Adam. Adam all of a sudden now has... Has has more has a plethora almost like he's in a playground of all these different toys he gets to play with, because because all of these new things are available to mm-hmm. him when you are part of a bigger group, and that was I the this I'm pretty sure he's the CEO of of Chateau Saint Michel um, met him several years ago and and just kind of appreciated Ted Basler's. Um, point of view on all of his different wineries, which he has called his string of pearls. And that's kind of one of his key phrases he says a lot. But I really understood it because with North Star and Walla Walla, he's got Murph Murfeld, who is running that property. And Murph is a winemaker. And Murph makes the decisions for North Star, Cole Solari, um, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars and, and Napa Valley, exactly. Antica. They they have they have these different wineries that are very much independent properties while still being a part of the bigger group. And there's one in particular that that kind of goes into my pairing with our docs that is a story that I've always loved for the winery and then kind of how St. Michelle acquired them. And that is Spring Valley Vineyards in, in Walla Walla. It's one of the first kind of tasting rooms we went to when yes. we were up 
up in Walla Walla several years it was in, ago. It was downtown, actually. It, they have a tasting room downtown and, and this charming little Walla Walla. But it's a, a vineyard in um, the hills, the rolling hills of Walla Walla. Started originally as, uh, as wheat fields, as much of the land um, in the region did. But it was land that was owned by the Corcoran family in the... 1800s and Sherry Kirk, Kirk, Kirkram, pardon me, Derby's grandfather, yeah. Uriah Kirkram, Uriah. Be, be, began farming in the area. Um, then through, you know, after some time was reacquired by by Sherry and her husband, um, Dean Derby. Dean was a former pro football player. He yep. played for the Rams and he played, I think he was traded to the Pittsburgh Steelers. His, picture, and, his picture's on one of the labels. Yes, and that's yes. something that they've always really done um, beautifully. And, and they reacquired the family land, planted it in uh, the 1990s and brought in Devin, uh, Dean and, and Sherry's son, Devin and Derby to manage the property and became their their vintage, their first uh, inaugural vintage winemaker in 1999 with um, with with Serge Lavelle to as his assistant. Then sadly in the early 2000s he died in a car crash. Serge stayed on, um, but about that time when when they when Devin passed, um, Dean Derby met Ted Basler on a on a flight, and I'm not sure exactly where they were going, but they were sitting next to each other on an airplane, just happened to be. And Dean didn't really know, you know, he, he the winery was kind of his son's project. It was their land, but the son was taking it over. And what do you do when when all of a sudden the, the person who's supposed to take this project on for the next generation isn't, isn't there anymore? And so they worked out a deal where St. Michelle would basically... Um, wow! Run the property with, but keeping Serge on as winemaker. Now, um, Dina Sherry's granddaughter Kate, who I adore, um, is kind of day to day operations, managing the farm with her husband. They have two little boys. Um, well, that is all in the and, family, and, though. And 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 so Saint Michelle is their owner, but they've been able to maintain the story, and and it is all of their labels have pictures of their former um, or members of their family from Derby with Dean and playing football. Um, Uriah is kind of their signature, their first wine that is kind of a a right bank Bordeaux style Merlot blend. Their cake, Cabernet Franc. I'm Catherine Cabernet Franc. I'm so in love with that's always been one of my my favorite wines. Um, they just last year introduced a Petit Bordeaux named after the named after Dean's wife Sherry Sherry Lee, and it's like one of the softest, most succulent, juicy uh, Petit Bordeaux wines where you think it's going to be really intense and really bold, and it's actually really luscious and lovely, very Man. much like like Sherry. And so it's, it's that Walla Walla juice. Well, and it's but it's it's been really great because again they can the the Derby family maintains the farm, main, you know they they manage the land with. St. Michelle taking over all of the, you know, sending out the press yeah, releases yeah. and and managing the the negotiations with with the distributors and going and working the working the media and doing kind of all of the 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 office things that need to be done. But Kate and Dean are still very involved. Serge is, is ready to to meet with visitors when they come to the tasting room. So yeah. it's it's kind of a it's it's a really nice I think marriage and something that you hope for when 
when some of these larger groups go in and buy yeah. some of these smaller properties. I think it's a great example of it done correctly. Right. Done right. Right. And, the, and it maintains and have, the quality of right. the wine. And I think that that's, there, there have been, there are instances that that doesn't always work. And so I think that these are a few really good examples and kind of those are the stories that I always try to, to seek out and, and get excited for. So kind of along the great lines of, of stories, let's talk about some of these documentaries. Well, both of these are kind of family stories yes. in, in a way. So the first one is The Eagle Huntress, both of these movies. And you have to understand that Haley and I, not only do we watch a lot of documentaries, they take you to places of the great ones that you probably have never gone or you revisit places that you've been and, and you go, oh and my, I really was there. Excited. Exactly. Like, like when you see a, so a, a travel doc. Yeah. yeah. Some are about life, some are about wine, food, music, politics. This is an Oscar contending film. It's on the finalist and we'll know in about a week. But the Eagle Huntress is about a 13 year old girl in Mongolia in a small village and she's being trained by her father. And she's the first one female ever because it comes from 10, I think 10 generations of males in their family to crawl up into an eagle's nest. They pluck a baby. It doesn't sound good. They pluck a baby out of the nest. And when you watch it, it's kind of harrowing. Mm -hmm. And you feel sorry for the baby eagle, but you also, they're risking their lives on this ledge. Right. They pluck it out and they train it to hunt for them. That's how they get their protein. Mm -hmm. And so they train it. They keep it on a leash. And this girl trains it in this little 13-year-old girl who's just got the sweetest adorable. face. Yes. Adorable girl. And then all of the villages get together in the country. They have a competition every year. And she's the first girl to ever in the country of Mongolia to enter the contest, let alone do well or win it. Right. And, and all these guys, and a lot of them are older men, and they're just offended that there's not only a, a youngster, but it's a girl. Yes. And not only is she good, she's better than they are yeah. at what the eagle does. Yeah. And it, it's not just a pet. It's, it's a family it, way it of really, hunting. Yes. And, it, but and see, I think putting then, food on the table. And the other way. It is, it's very much hunting, but there's, there's a real beautiful connection there. There is. And I think that that sometimes and I don't know if that's because she, because she's young or because she's a woman, but there's almost like a, a nurturing aspect to to her relationship, which I Is it unlike is it unlike uh, you know, a hunter with his hunting dog? Exactly. I mean, you have I think to it's kind a little wonder. closer than mm -hmm. even that. And or, although for some people that would be close. So this is directed by a British guy named Otto Bell, B E L L, and he cashed in his life savings around $80,000. Came up $15,000 short, um, went into debt for that, still didn't have enough money to make it. And the great Morgan Spurlock, who makes documentaries, supersized me, mm -hmm. um, came on and helped finish out the film. So he's an executive producer on it. I don't know what this film has made so far. Some report is $15 million. I know on Box Office Mojo, it's over $2 million. Mm -hmm. But for an $80,000 project to good. start. <laughs> and they shot the film with a, cam uh, a crew of three. And when you watch this film, it's one of the better documentaries you'll see really cinematography-wise. Yeah. Not just because of where they are, but the way that they, they, they use the shot. red camera. Mm -hmm. But they use GoPro cameras, too. And they put them on. I, I'm just fascinated by the Eagle Huntress. Mm -hmm. And I smiled so much by the end of this movie. Yes, it's a girl power movie. Yes, it's a cultural experience. And yes, it's a hunting movie. And yes, it's this bond between an, a wild animal and a 13-year-old. Mm -hmm. And then she's a girl in a village full of boys. Yeah. 
I, I, I love great. this movie. It's really great. So the other one that we love is called The Birth of Sake. I loved this documentary so much. We're knocked out by this. I think we this found is, it on iTunes. Yes. I think it's I think it might have, it might have been on Netflix. I think that yeah. so you could if you if you subscribe to Netflix, Did we you get can it for watch free? it for free. Yes. Well free in that you pay um, your monthly yes. thing. But I um I I I I did. I loved this documentary because one, I think it's it's so beautifully done and it tr- the the work that goes into making sake is to make it correctly to right. do it by hand is painstaking. It's it's you have to be incredibly disciplined. You um you have to follow protocol to a T. Because they're making it in a traditional sense. In a traditional It's a one hundred and forty four year old I, I want to call it a brewery. Yes, because it, it is. is. Yes. Yeah. And they're making it by hand in the traditional method. And so it takes like six months, they, seven these, months. These people, these men yeah. leave their families to to work they live in bunk beds, almost from you know sunup to to after sundown, mm-hmm. um, because it is such a painstaking process. They live in in a small kind of dorm at the brewery, um, very communal, very much in a hierarchy. Yeah, because you you have the young you know young new, new sake master sake um, interns, I'll call them that then all report into the sake master. So you have. And how all of that is chosen is a whole other kind of how the respect and the the dedication to the craft and how someone is chosen and why that person is chosen and and almost in a hero dreams of sushi kind of note because you have a you know a son that is coming up mm-hmm. and is that really the best person and and um you see people that do leave their families and leave people behind, but then you also see people, some of the men that that this is this is their only family, and so in their downtime when when it's you know off season, they they don't they go home and they're by themselves, and so they look forward to coming back and having that camaraderie. I just I, I it's kind of like was, being on a team. It really and and it was so beautifully shot it was so beautifully done it was so beautifully shot it was so respectfully shot i i loved this documentary. so the guy that the cinematographer or the director is a guy named eric shirai and he's the guy that shoots no reservations okay for that anthony makes, bourdain that makes complete sense yes so he has an eye for photography but like he lets photography but i mean we've watched a lot of food and wine documentaries mm-hmm. and they I would say 95% of them or more don't look this good. They don't. And yes. they and they this one takes time I and mean, this you have to do a little bit of work in watching this film. It's, it's because some it's of those a shots slow. were longer. It's yes. an art film, but you get the dis- like it's like Hero, you know, Hero mm-hmm. Dreams of Sushi that mm-hmm. you get a sense of the discipline, but wow the shots in this film. I'm kind of knocked out by mm-hmm. the birth of sake. Mhm. And it might be, I don't know how we happened on it one night, but we just did and went, yeah, let's watch Like well, anything, let's watch it. And if we don't like it in 30 minutes, we'll turn it well, off. Well, and I think it's because a little bit of what you said. It's hard. We've seen so many food documentaries, so many. There are a lot of wine documentaries out there that, and often they do disappoint because either the story, they might look okay, but the story is just kind of nonsense, or the story has a lot of heart, but it's just shot horribly. Shot and so with a sledgehammer. Yes, and so to see Bad something music. that's yeah. just so 
so beautiful it was a beautiful film about some about a craft that is so respected and i mm-hmm. think that that we've said i've certainly said a few times that there are in the world we live in today there aren't very many professions that really have have the respect for a lot of kind of the traditional hierarchy of of how you work your way up and why it's important to to maintain some of these things and and learn from a master and and aspire to to become that master yeah. so many people want quick quick you know everything has to be quick satisfaction instead of actually putting in the time making the effort and doing the work if we're really lucky someday we'll get to drink this sake that's made in this film by hand uh as a side note this will thrill you Haley. it won the bend film festival the bend film festival is a documentary film festival i think and it it won best doc (laughs) and it won the ashland film festival so in southern oregon and ashland the Shakespeare Festival is in Central Oregon Bend, where they make great beer. And I was going to say, good, and, they make great beer and sell good wine. And and Southern Oregon, the yeah. home of the the Rogue River Creamery. Right. So good stuff. You know, yes. we talked about the founder, and we talked about uh, two docs that we love: the Eagle Huntress, which you can find on demand, and now the Birth of Saki, which we put right up there with Chef's Table. Mm-hmm. It's that good. Coming up next week on Wine and Film: A Perfect Pairing, Oscar-winning Texas actor Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> Say it. I won't because he's tired of everybody saying it. All right. Stars (laughs) in a new film called Gold, which is based on the crazy true story of digging for gold in Indonesia and then its wild, relentless ride on Wall Street. Yeah. But uh, for now, hopefully you guys, uh, we've been talking about it for the last few weeks, but we have a handful of tickets left for our show next week. With the Arboretum, we hope that you've gotten your tickets. Um, it's our Oscar preview. We'll have wine tasting, and Gary will run through the nominations. We'll pair the, uh, a few of the key categories with some incredible wines, have all the wines figured out. I'm, I'm thrilled. I, I know we have a handful of tickets left, um, but you've got to give them before Monday. So DallasArboretum.org, you can find details and the tickets there. Hope to see you there. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But for any more on the films or wines we talked about today, please check out our blog on CogillConsulting.com. Follow Gary on Twitter at Gary Cogill and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dallas Uncorked. And with that, I'm Gary Cogill and I'm always looking for the next great film. And I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill, always in search of a great glass of wine. Join us next time on Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing.